Hello and welcome. My name is Karen O'Connor and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Hello and welcome. Today I'm here with Alan Stevens. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much, Karen. It's good to be here. I am really excited to talk to you because you're a profiling and communication specialist and the work that you do, I just find really fascinating. So first of all, talk to me about what it is you do. Explain what it is you do. People, when you mention the word though, a profiler, people think of CSI, that sort of thing, hunting out and finding criminals and things. But it starts with, first of all, being able to understand another person. And that, first of all, understanding ourselves as well. So I teach people how to be able to read other people, to understand their personalities, to know how to then uh, connect with that person, how to talk to them. And then from there, when they're not talking to them in the way that the other person needs to be spoken to, in other words, tuning your transmitter into the other person's receiver so that they can, you can get your message across and they can understand you. With getting the, the right uh, approach to how you speak to them right, then you've got the feedback from your body language and expressions that uh, then tell you whether you read them right. Is there something emotionally going on or are they telling you the truth? And so it's using that not so much as a lie detector, but as a truth seeker. Somebody's not telling me the truth. I want to know why they're not telling me the truth. What's the emotional reason behind that? Can I help them? Is there an issue going on in their life where they might need you know, some support? If I can give them that support, then I built a stronger relationship with that person. And it's all about building relationships. It's really interesting you say that because as, as you were talking, I've got four children, right? And I adore them all. They're all completely different. And I have different challenges in relating to each one of them. And one in particular does not like to be told what to do. Let's put it that way. And it's, it's a little bit more subtle than that. But it's if they say something and I go, oh, you could do blah, they will just do the exact opposite, just complete contrariness. And I was thinking about it after I had a conversation with them the other day. Okay, who can I be? What is missing for that person that they're reacting to me in that way? Obviously, I'm pushing on some kind of trigger. <laughs> and I would like to be, I like to feel like I'm contributing. I would like to be able to feel like I could contribute to the child, not a child, they're a grown up now, but mm. it's that kind of thing that you're talking about, isn't it? It is. It's very much that because everybody is different. We all have our different personalities. We all have our different values and our desires in life. The common thread that we all have is though that we all want to belong, that we want to contribute, we want to feel that we're valued. And in that, when you speak to somebody, if you, they feel that there's a disconnect, that you're not really valuing them or you're speaking down to them when they feel that they have a more, a better level of confidence and a better understanding, they're going to get their nose out of joint. So being able to look at somebody, and this is where the, the profiling comes in, your facial features tell me everything I need to know about your personality. It's not phrenology. It's not based on the old view that bumps on the head, the person would be a criminal, that sort of thing. That was all debunked, thank God. It, but you, people can look similar. See, if you lift weights, you're going to build muscles in your body. So if you did bicep curls, you'd build your biceps up. If you turn the hand from being a, an upward direction to the palm down and lifted the weights, you'll get a different structure in the muscles. So we know that when we work a muscle over and over, it will change shape. 
at the same time, everything we feel inside, we express outwardly. This is why body language and expressions work. This is how we can read people in that way. So when you're concentrating and thinking, you're pulling expressions over and over, working the same muscles in your face and creating ridges and crevices that now are a roadmap, a history of how you like to think and process. These are what we call the nurture traits, the ones that you developed in response to your environment, the ones that you chose to create. We start off with our nature traits, which were passed down from our parents in our DNA. That gives us a foundation, and then we create our and change our personality over time with our response to our environment, with the, the nurture traits. So when you've got that, if you're looking at somebody and they've got the traits that show they've got a higher level of confidence, that they only want the least amount of information to make a decision and everything else, and you're somebody who is giving them a lot of information, they're going to switch off. They're going to feel that you're talking down to them. But if you're able to recognize that, you can change the amount of information you deliver to them. You can do it in a way in which you're also asking them questions where they feel that they are actually teaching you back in return. That then removes that problem of them thinking, hey, you're just putting me down, therefore I'm not going to do, I'm going to be contrary, I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do. So I missed that last <laughs> bit. Sorry. I know you're talking about me here. And because when I was selling my house late last year, I interviewed two real estate agents and the one who just talked and talked at me without, you know, I've been buying and selling houses for 30 years. And mm. I was just like, yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> with the other one who showed yeah. some respect and read the room properly that was how I said it to myself the the other one mm. didn't read my body language she would she would just she had a sales pitch and she was going on it so how do you mm. learn to do that how can you because I have a very expressive face whatever goes on in my brain comes out on my face mm. <laughs> so. yeah well for me in the first instance I was shocking at reading people I'd been through two divorces. I'd had business partners who emptied the bank out. I'd had a lot of different relationships. And it was a bit of, almost two decades ago, I realized I needed to understand people in a different way. And so before that, I'd been working with body language since the 1970s. Into the 80s, I used Myers-Briggs and DISC and psychometric profiling and those systems, but I still didn't have the skills that I needed at that point. In the 90s, I got involved with NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. So how do we structure language to get elicit different responses from people? And in the uh, early part of 2000, I went through a, my second divorce. And at that point, I went, I have to have a better way of reading people. And a few things happened over the next year or so. And I finally met a, a lady who taught, taught the facial features. At the same time, I found the gentleman who did all the work on the micro expressions. And that came about from doing a workshop with a friend where I was using Myers-Briggs as a, an example. And somebody just said to me, have you ever looked at reading faces? And I thought, that's pretty cool. I wonder how that works. From where we were doing this at this retreat, it was about an hour and a half drive home. And all I could think about was that all the way home. Got onto Google when I got home, found a lady by the name of uh, Naomi Tickle over in the States, an English lady who became a very good friend of mine after that. And uh, Paul Ekman, who did all the research, a psychologist, on the micro-expressions, little twitches on the face that tell us exactly what the person is feeling in that moment. Because those are uncontrollable. When something happens around you or something uh, is said, unconsciously we respond. There's an expression. Then our conscious mind steps in and the expression goes. And that could be as fast as a fifth of a second down to one twenty-fifth of a second. 
But in that moment, the human eye can pick that up. And so being able to pick that up told me whether the person was telling me the truth, told me what they were feeling in the moment. But the real powerful part of it, even though it was the one thing that most people just went, that's a little bit out there, it's a little bit clairvoyancy, was the facial features. That gives me the strong foundation. As I say, when people ask me in business, what do I bring to the table? What products and services? All I can say is I just bring the table because the relationships that we build, we put them build our rest of our business on. If you don't have the foundation in place, doesn't matter how good your products or services are, if you can't build a relationship, you're not going to get clients. So the relationship of products and services are equally important, but the priority is always build the relationship first. And so if, if when somebody says to you, what do you bring to the table? The table's got to be the relationships. And that's what I work with. So by having the understanding of the facial features, I know how you like to be spoken to, how you like to be treated. Then I can change the way that I like to be spoken to to match you. And as I said, I've got the feedback from the body language and expressions that give me the feedback that I need. And so that's how all that came together. But that was, it's probably been about 15 years that I've been working with this now. And I've put four modalities together that nobody else had looked at, that all looked at them separately, but nobody had put them together. And virtually you brought four sciences together that have now created an art form of how to read people. So it's hence the science and art of reading people. So talk to me about the different facial expressions. How do suppose on a, we know on a subconscious level, let's just go with generalizations like, oh my God, they're really miserable or they look really angry or they're a happy person. But I'd never read it as it being a facial features. I never thought of it as being a facial features thing before. It's a muscular thing you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, well, facial features are the static features you have on your face. So the the width of your face, the different or the shape of your nose and things like that, all of those, they are, we develop those over time. They don't change overnight. They don't change in the moment. They change over a period of time. Like somebody who starts to really focus on, I've got to do more, I've got to do more. I've really got to, you know, well, when I started my first uh, job, I left uh, in employment, started my own business. I then had to become, understand all the different aspects of it. Not only was I doing the technical stuff that I did, did when I was employed, but now I was learning how to run a business. I was also the janitor. I was also the person who cleaned the toilet. So I had to do all those different tasks and tasks that I never would have done while I was an employee. So now I'm really thinking like this. And while I'm doing that, I'm flaring my nostrils. So my corner of my nostrils are going to flare as well which is going to show a determination. So if you've got somebody with flared nostrils, you'll know that they are very self-reliant. They're focused on getting things done. And so those traits can change over time, but the expressions, they hand, happen in the moment. As I said, they can be as fast as a fifth of a second down to one twenty-fifth of a second. They first of all tell you what the person's feeling, but they also tell you whether it's in line with what has been said or happened at the time. Say, for instance, I was talking to you about somebody that you told me was a really good friend of yours. And then I tell you that friend has just broken up for their partner. And I see a very quick little sudden flick of the corner of the mouth, a little smile. I know you're happy. Now, I could be for a number of different reasons. This is why I don't assume that, hey, okay, you're happy that they've lost their partner. That's a nasty thing to be like. But it could be that you were thinking that their partner was a horrible person. And that be, you know, might have been somebody who was abusive. Now they're really happy because you're happy for them because their life is going to be better. It could be that, yeah, you didn't like them and it's been a bit cocky lately and it's nice to see them get a bit of a kick in the bum. 
And so you might be happy about them actually losing their partner for that sort of reason, or it could be even the point now their partner's gone, they're free. So you might have a shot with having a relationship with them, or you can go after their partner. It could be a whole multitude of reasons, but it tells you what the person, there's something's going on. And it, but not taking one thing and saying, oh, that person is just really happy that my friends lost their partner. But you ask them questions and you look for more indicators that then tell you exactly what the story is. But it gets you to that very quickly. Now, one of the things that I'll point out here as well is, and you, this is to your audience, have you had the experience where you've been talking to somebody and everything sounded fine, but you had that gut feeling that something was wrong? If that is the case, then you have read the other person. You have picked up not just their words, but you picked up the tone of voice, their body language, all those nonverbals that have told you that it didn't correlate and stack up with what they've actually said. And if we know that if the words don't match what we pick up in the nonverbals, we'll always believe the nonverbals and not the language, the, the words they've used. So they may have said everything right, but we realize something's wrong and therefore we won't trust them. And every child when they're first born has all these skills, except for a very small minority group of children, very small percentage who can't recognize facial features or expressions. The vast majority of us, we did, it was survival. We had to recognize who was who. We had to recognize our father. We had to recognize our mother. We had to recognize those that were safe to be around and especially those people that wasn't safe to be around. We had to pick up their emotions. Is that person happy with us? You know, if what I'm doing, is that going to lead to getting a smack? All those sort of things as we're growing up. But as we get older, we now feel safe around our family. We know it's a much easier to recognize who the people are that we should be around and shouldn't be around. And now we're focusing on sports and going to school and all these other activities. And what we're focused on is where our intention goes and our attitude, our whole focus goes in that direction. And the other things like reading people falls away. I don't teach anybody anything new when I'm teaching them. I'm just refreshing and rebuilding that muscle they had when they were a young child. So if I can learn this, anybody can learn how to do this as well, because everyone had the skill when they were very young children. How much, and this is a bit of a left fielder, but this is where my brain's gone. How much does this tie in with emotional maturity or what we call emotional maturity? As I always say to the, everybody, there are four things in, that we need to recognise. One is that everybody has suffered or has suffered. Everybody wears a mask. And every last one of us pretend we're not wearing a mask. And we're also a combination of how we've chosen to respond to all the events of our life, all the things that have happened to us. So when we realise that everybody's at a different level of their maturity because what they, the support they had when they were growing up, the experiences they've been through, and there are no two people on the planet with the same experiences, no two people with the same personality. When you put people in boxes, I find that is very disrespectful. It's okay for the person who's profiling them to be able to get an idea of who that person is. But then I come along and take the person out of the box and say, okay, now I'm going to treat you as an individual, unique from everybody else on the planet. Because there isn't a person on the planet who is not one in 8 billion people. If we've got 8 billion people on the planet, every last one of us is one in 8 billion. We're all different. So it's finding the, and reading somebody and understanding their strengths. Now the strengths and how they respond to their environment and the downside of all of our traits, how we get triggered when we're stressed, that will change as we learn new experiences. So the facial uh, features, 
will start to change. If you've got somebody who believes that life is always going to be against them, they're going to frown a lot. The corner of the mouth is going to pull down because the muscles down here will get stronger in the lower part of the face. The muscles up the top will get stretched and pulled down because these shorter, the ones down below have gotten shorter and stronger. It gives a bit of an indication of where somebody is and how they, what sort of a life they've led. If you've got a, a younger photo and an older photo of them, you've got a pretty good idea of uh, the journey of life that they've been through. You know the things that they may have affected them, etc. The it's not so much that the expressions or the facial features determine the emotional intelligence or the emotional growth. The emotional growth have the impact then on the facial features and the expressions that we're pulling over and over. How we respond to something. Some people will hear something and immediately go to the negative thoughts, and others will listen to it longer, be more active in listening. We know that the research is showing that when somebody today starts to talk about problems they've got and other people are listening, the amount of time it takes before somebody will jump in and give advice is 19 seconds. There's not much information you get in 19 seconds, which shows that so many people, goes back to those four points I said before, everybody is suffering and we're also a combination of all their, our experiences. So we respond to improve our emotional intelligence is taking that step back and going, okay, before I respond to something, what's really going on here? What is this person meaning whatever? The more I understand somebody's facial features, I know how they're going to respond if I say certain things. So I can then think about that beforehand and go, right, if I want to get a positive outcome out of this, I need to rephrase that. So I can start by rephrasing it. So by understanding the facial features, I've already started to impact on improving my emotional intelligence. And then if somebody understands the other person who is talking at the time, they can read their facial features. They've got a pretty good idea as why that person's saying that, because then they can listen to understand as opposed to listening to respond. Most people will listen to what somebody says and respond with their emotions in a negative way in a lot of cases. And other people will stop and go, okay, what's that person really meaning? Where's this really coming from? I had an example just recently where it's all involved with the passing of a friend and everything else. And there was one person who was really upset, picked the phone up and rang me and for 20 minutes went off on a tirade. Now, most people would have hung up on him long before that. He hung up on me. And 20 minutes later, I rang him back. After that 20 minutes, I rang him straight back. And I went, you haven't finished yet. Keep going. Another 40 minutes. And because I knew that where he was coming from had nothing to do with me. It was just something that he just needed to vent with somebody and I became the obvious choice. So by listening to him, I understood him. I was then able to help him through what he was going through and we've got a solid friendship again. So it depends on if you understand the other person, we don't respond so emotionally because I now look at it in emotional, what do you call it, some compassionate empathy as opposed to emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy, I can see you're in pain. I can feel you, I know you're in pain and even a torturer needs that to get their jollies. I need to see you're in pain. The emotional empathy, I can feel your pain. Most people get caught up in that because I can feel your pain but and therefore will involve themselves in that pain or they will try and separate themselves away from it and distance themselves. And that's when you get the two fractions of people fighting. Or you would say, I can see your pain, I can feel your pain. And I acknowledge your pain. That's the first thing is always not acknowledging the person is caught up in the emotional empathy and then go right now. I've acknowledged that. How can we actually change that? How can we compassionately get a result? 
So you go to compassionate empathy, and then you can work through and getting those results. It takes a fair bit of work to get to that point because most of us get caught up in the emotional empathy, and that's where we end up staying. There's a couple of things that are coming out of this for me, and they go off on different tangents. The first one is if we subconsciously recognise facial features and what they mean, is that why there is a tendency? We tend to be attracted to people with similar features to ourselves. That's like when you say somebody looks like a good couple, it's because they look alike. Is this part mm. of the cause of that? And then the other one is why you, you start at the start of what you were just saying then, you were saying that when we hit uh, later childhood, early teens, we become less interested in reading people and more interested in doing other things. Why is that? And why does some people, why is it, does it continue to be important to some people and not others? And how do we get back to that? It, because it's a necessary skill as far as I can see. As far as I can see, it's been something that I've always counted as important. So, yeah. So two completely different questions there, Alan. <laughs> Go to the second one first, as you said, why do some people still focus on building and understanding and building relationships while other people get caught up in doing other things? It comes back to our personalities again, because some people will be focused on moving forward, doing new things, being adventurous, etc. And so they will then, once they've got something sorted out, like how many people perfect something and then continue doing that forever? A lot of people will then go on and actually try and do the next thing. So it's a difference in our personalities and the facial features will give that information a way to start with. And so by recognising that, then you can tell, I can look at somebody and go, okay, would this person be best in a job where they're doing repetitive work? Or would this person, somebody who needs to have continual change to stimulate them, etc.? We know that if we swap those two people around in the opposite roles, they're not, neither of them are going to be happy. So if we're able to recognise that, and I always say there's no right or wrong trait. No trait is better than another trait. We have the traits that our parents gave us to start with. Then we have our traits that we develop over time due to our, how we respond to our environment. So once we understand that, you'll notice that when you mentioned before, couples who have, have been together for a long time, they may have looked different when they first got together. But as we get older and spend that time together, we start to look similar. How many husbands and wives look very similar to each other? And that's because they did have similar personalities. They enjoyed doing the same things. They had the same expressions over and over. And so you start to see their features, the nurture traits start to develop and become looking more similar to each other. So there's a development of that as well. There's the, when we look at differences in people, some couples are completely different in the way that they look. They have an exciting and in their first years, it's really exciting. They either hang in there because they learn how to, to, to actually speak to each other's personalities or they'll end up separated. Now, this is one of the things that I love is the difference in somebody else in another person are usually the things that excite us when we first meet them. This is where the, the lust and everything else comes into it. But over a period of time, we get used to the way they do things, the excitement we get used to. Because if you ate the same food like chocolate cake or whatever it is that you really love, you keep eating it over a period of time, you're going to lose the, the attraction to it. It's going to no longer be that exciting to you. It's the same thing with the upside of the traits. They become 
less exciting to us. But now we notice the downside of the traits. Somebody who is very expressive and dynamic and everything else, they're fun and exciting to be around. But once we get used to that, then we notice that when there's stress, they're also doing that stress with the same fervor, the same excitement. And so now we then want to pull away from because that, but if we know that this is the way they need to express themselves, so instead of pulling away from them, I'd go to that person and say, look, I know you're upset. Is this something you want me to fix or you want me to listen? And if they say, I just want you to listen, I know they just need to vent because they need to get it out of themselves. Whereas I might be the personality of type who keeps it inside and needs to work on it myself. So now I've speak to that partner, they feel more happy around me and the excitement comes back into the relationship. In my case, I've got aesthetic appreciation when I've got something on my mind, I will pull back. I just want to be left alone. I want to sort it out. I want to get it fixed. Now, if my partner is asking me what's going on, I'm going to pull away to my cave because I, I'm trying to fix a problem. I haven't got time to talk about this. But if my partner said to me, first of all, is this anything to do with me? And I'd say, no. Is it anything that I can do to help you? And if I said no, and they just said to me, look, I know you need to work on this in your, on your own. I'm going to leave you alone to do that. But come and tell me, tell me about it when you've got it sorted out because I care. Because now I know they're not pulling back because I'm pushing them away and they don't, they're breaking apart. But they're realizing I need that space, but they're telling me that they still care. So please come back and tell me afterwards. So just by changing that little way in which we're talking, I now feel not pressured, but drawn back to my partner. The partner who has got the more excitement in the way in which they talk, they know that I'm going to be there when they need to vent. And I know not to take it on because it's got nothing to do with me. They just told me that. They didn't want me to fix it. So therefore, there's nothing that I broke in the first place or something that I could fix for them anyway. But now they're saying that I just need to vent. And then because I then let them do hold that space for them, they know I care. Do you think we're going to be closer? Definitely. So and this how is how it all works. Being able it, to read those traits, talk to the person. Yeah. and But how do you start to read those traits? Because it seems to be like some people are just not not interested and not good at it. And they might not eat, then even try. They, a lot of people, what am I trying to say here? A lot of people will just react to whatever's going on with the person and not really be interested. They don't know how to move beyond that. How do you learn to do it? Yeah, this is Sometimes if you've got a couple, for instance, that's when they do need somebody who can sit down with them. It's not so much what I call it couples counselling. It's more a case of somebody who can listen and say, look, I want to get an idea of what's going on here. And by listening to how each party's talking and understanding their facial features can then say, okay, I can recognise this is how you need to actually communicate. And because I do a lot of work with couples, teaching them, first of all, helping somebody to find the right partner, one that matches their personality, because knowing what a person is looking for and then saying the partner over here has those traits that are going to conflict with that or they're going to have the traits that will support that. So I can then teach them, this is the person who's got the facial features and I'll align with what it is you want in a partner. Then I can teach them how to communicate. I can work with both of them. So in the early stages, Having, keeping that excitement in their relationship well into the future and knowing how to rekindle it whenever it wanes. But then being able to, when they have children, to read their children and understand their personalities, they can talk to them differently. I've got three sons and I would describe them as chalk and cheese and I often joke about the fact, number three, I'm still trying to work out and he's in his 30s now. But the whole thing with it is that 
they were all different because they were all affected by our DNA. My wife and I, when we first had the first one, we had no ideas about having a child and looking after a child and everything else. So we behaved in a certain way. Later on, we had more knowledge. Now, when it comes to the traits that we have, the DNA of a person, it's passed down from the parents and memories are stored in the DNA in every cell of the body. So whatever the experience both parents had at the point of conception of the child is now in the child's DNA. The next child we have further down the line, we have new experiences, new knowledge. That is in the DNA as well. And that's why so many times we looked at the three children and looked at the first one as being the one that we, you know, we treated in a certain way. Number two, we created rules for number two and number three ignored the rules that we created. And we joke about that. And that's been, and most parents will say they've got three kids go, yeah, that's right. Because we have that new knowledge that comes along. So this has been proven that our memories are stored in every cell of our body. And therefore they're passed through in the DNA. One of the reasons why particular conditions that somebody might have like breast cancer in a, it might be um, more prevalent in a certain family because one parent is, the mother has had it, one of the ancestors that's passed down to the next person and through And So there's more a, a higher percentage of them having it because in the DNA. So these things that when we understand that this is not something woo, it's not clairvoyance or anything else, it's based on science. It's based on biology, the facial features and the expressions in the body language, they are related to the emotional side of things. So our physiology and neurology are linked. All of this stuff comes together. Our facial features from when we're born are actually impacted not just by, we say genetics and we think of genetics as being a purely physical thing, but what you're saying is that it's not a purely physical mm. thing. It affects our personality and our almost history, doesn't it? It actually, our history stretches back beyond ourselves mm. in a physical way, not just in, in mm. family mm. memory. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's a lot of things in there because my background when I first grew up was all technical. I was left telecom after 23 years as a principal technical officer. Now, I've worked in so many different areas. I've been through Aboriginal culture. I'm involved with the Buddhist community. The end result is that like people will talk about past life experiences. I was, this, I was a, you know, a Viking maiden in a previous life or something like that. People who can believe that at the same time, for those that don't believe that, we can talk about this, the scientific side of it and say that the memories that they're stored in each cell of our body and passed down through the generations. Yes, the memory that you're having right now of that uh, Viking maiden could possibly have been somebody, one of your ancestors in the uh, distant uh, past. So we can look at it from both sides. There's a combination. There's, we can't have a spiritual world without a material world. We can't have a material world without a spiritual world. They're opposite sides of the coin. You can't have an upside without a downside or an inside without an outside. All of these things are connected and it depends on how you want to look at them as to which way the description of it best suits your personality and your belief systems. But at the end of the day, everything that uh, was affected your parents' life at the point of your conception will be there as well in your DNA. That gives you the foundation to start with. But we are not controlled by that because we have our nurture traits and because we have choice, we can determine how we want to respond to any given situation. And so now we've got control over our life. Yes, we had a, a, a building block, the foundations where we started, but what we put on those foundations 
how many rooms, how we put a roof on it, put a decking on it type of attitude. That will determine by us on how we choose to develop our personality over a period of time. Yeah, I love that <laughs> analogy. You've got a basic house and then you add to it. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. So That's just it. I'm fascinated yeah. by that poster behind you, the are, are they lying thing, because when you're in a relationship of any <laughs> kind, whether it's with your partner, with your kids, with your bestie, whatever, that learning to read them, and we all know how every child is a manipulative little liar at some point in their lives, and you've got to learn to pick it up. <laughs> it's, just, it's just human nature, mm. right? We've got to try these things. That's my view on yeah. it. They've got to try, mm. and we've yeah. got to find out what works for us and what doesn't. Looking at that picture yeah. behind you, what is that all about? Back in 2016, I was invited to London to Pinewood Studios by Gillette and Disney for their launch of the Rogue One Star Wars movie. And my job was to be interviewed by the world's press. So I wanted a few things to get conversations going. Are they lying from a still photograph? No, you can't determine that. But what I used that was a, the title was to get their attention and then talk about the facial features because my job while I was there was to explain to them the stories the face tells before you utter a single word. While with Gillette were, um, had a, a hair groomer there, a, a, a hairdresser who his job was to teach people about how you shape your beard and everything else, how it changed your appearance and how the perception of other people, how they took you, how that affected you. 120 journalists, they flew in from around the world. And my job was to talk to them about that. And I found the easiest way to do it was just to profile every last one of them. As they came up, they bring their colleagues up. I'd turn around and go righty out to their colleagues. I'd say, I guarantee your colleague over here, this is what happens on there. And then when you're in this situation, this happens. And from that, I got written up all over the world. That's what the, uh, the thing is about. It's, I like to get people's attention and then correct them on it because everyone looked at that and said, oh, can I look at their face and tell if they're lying? No, I can't. You can't. But it got you to ask the question. That was the main reason for those posters. And I had several of those that I'd set up because it was star wars the little booths that we had there were four of us there were two for there was me the hair groomer and there were two two uh, pods for the uh, what do you call it the scientists from gillette and the rest of it was all set up with all the outfits from the rogue one the movie and they were sh shaped like little escape pods talk about being a boy with <laughs> here i am standing in the pod with all this stuff around and the screens and everything else working oh I was in heaven. I was a really happy little boy. <laughs> I would have been as well. Wow. <laughs> I bet you had a lot of fun there, didn't you? Like, I'm just picking that up. That was so much fun to do that, to profile all those people and talk about them. Yeah, it is. I recently did a national tour for the real estate agents through the Advisor magazine. It was their summits in each of the, the states in Australia plus their awards nights. And that was each Thursday in March. So it was the 1st of March. So five Thursdays all the way through. The first one was in Brisbane. Then I was over to Perth on the other side of Australia. And then from uh, Perth back to Adelaide, down the bottom of Australia, back to Sydney, and then down to Melbourne. And each of those, we had anything up to about 500 real estate agents in the room. And what I would do is I'd give my talk. And then after it, I'd always say to people, look, 
I can, because I'd read people from the audience, bring people out on stage and do demonstrations. And then I'd say, everybody, if you've got your, cam your phones with you and you've got a photo of your wife or your husband or your children or somebody that you've got an issue with that you're trying to get around that problem, meet me over the side and I will have a look at you, look at the photograph and I'll tell you how to go and work with that person. I had lines, I spoke before afternoon tea. We had afternoon tea and then we had three speakers after me. I still had my line of people lined up all the way after the three speakers had finished. And I always have fun because I love it being able to look at somebody because I'm looking for the gift that they, they have, the strength that they have, the stuff that they can't see in themselves. And I get a real buzz when I've got somebody who goes, oh, I didn't know that about myself. And they start to look at themselves. Their chest comes out, their shoulders go back. You've had an impact on how they feel about themselves. That led on to the campfire project where I've, we sit down with men and women from around the world, holding a safe place for them to be able to tell their stories. And knowing that we've had 600 hours of conversations, over 400 people that we've actually interviewed one-on-one -on -one, and then panel discussions that have affected so many people's lives. This is why I love reading people. It was originally because I wanted to build relationships for me. Now, my whole life since I learned how to do this has been helping other people build their relationships. And I get a real joy when I see people feeling that their life is better than, it, than they thought it was and realizing there's more they can do. Because at the same time, that is also greedy of me because I know if more people are happier, we've got a better society, a happier community, a more productive community, and when you get older, there's always people around you that you don't have to worry about, but you're, you're glad they're there and they want to be there as well. It gives quality to everyone's life. That's why I do what I do. Talk to me about the Campfire Project. What is it? Originally, I started it mainly because talking to men in business, a lot of them, when I'd ask them, I said, look, if there was one word to describe how you feel about things, about work and personal life, what would it be? And the number of times I got the word confused was staggering and I'd ask them confused about what and a lot of men said look we grew up especially baby boomers and the gen x as well it was all about getting out there creating a job getting the income income and bringing back bringing the resources back to the family and that meant we had to do extra time out there we would do that then the men were being told you're physically and emotionally absent you're out there bringing the resources in, but you're not home. And they said, but if we're home, we're not bringing the resources. We can't be in two places at once. And that was causing frustration and confusion. And then I said, what about at work? And they said, with all the political correctness and all of the gender equality and everything else, men were saying, yes, we believe in all of that, but we're so worried that the rules keep changing. And what we can say today, we can't say tomorrow. So we're on tender hooks all the time. And that was causing them frustration. And I knew that these were men who wanted to do the right thing, but were so worried about being misjudged. That was leading on to frustration, to anger, and in some cases, bullying in the workplace and also domestic violence. So I thought the only way to reduce the impact on domestic violence, and that's both men and women who are victims of domestic violence, is to have people understand themselves better so that they didn't get to that point where they would then act out. But I had women in the group from day one because I didn't want it to be a men's group. I wanted it to be a place where, first of all, the men felt safe enough to tell their stories, to then realise they had women who were listening in, and for the women to be able to hear how men could speak when they felt safe enough to do so. Because in most cases, yes, men will rule the boardroom, 
because that's what we're used to. This, this is our domain. It's out there killing the beast, bringing the, the prize back to the family. And that's why women find it more difficult in the boardroom because we're still breaking that old way of thinking. But in outside, when it comes to emotions, we know that women are far better at discussing things than men are. Men will always pull back. If the man goes to speak and the woman says, that's not the case, whatever, he will pull back. So I thought I had to get the men talking first. So I started interviewing men around the world and interviews like one guy was uh, six years old when his brother sold him for sex and those rapes went on for three years. And then it was physical and emotional abuse till he left home at the age of 15. <clears throat> Another guy who grew up in a house full of domestic violence and he was actually 15 when he came home, heard a commotion one day, grabbed his uh, six-month-old uh, younger sister out of the cot, which was in his parents' room, his other sister and his two brothers, and protected them while he watched his father stab his mother to death. These are stories that a lot of people find it really difficult to talk about. So I decided I needed a safe place where we wouldn't counsel, we wouldn't tell them they were right, we wouldn't judge them, we would just be the eyes and ears that they hadn't had before. And the men started coming in and started pouring their hearts out and really opening up. Then I brought them into panel discussions and we started talking about how do we address things like pornography, drugs, alcohol, abuses of different kinds, masculinity, femininity, all that toxicity may go around those or things. And I knew it. I was waiting for it. That's when the women started sending me personal messages and they said, we love these guys. Never heard men talk so emotionally or so deeply about their emotions nor so wisely about how to improve society. And they said, any chance we can get involved? And I went, time's right. Brought the women into the one-on-ones, into the panel discussions. Now we've had about 200 panel discussions and we've talked about, we actually extended that into talking about menopause, menstruation, does size matter in the bedroom? All religions and cultures are welcomed in there. The oldest person I've interviewed, 99 years old. His name was Ted Hughes, and so I you know, advertised that I was doing a TED Talk. And uh, so Ted uh, told his story. The youngest one to actually run an interview, my second, uh, I brought a, a guy in who did the one-on-ones, joined the panel discussions, and I got him to step up and start running one-on-ones and panels. And his son then decided he wanted to interview him. So Oscar, when he interviewed Scott, my co-host in the group, Oscar was nine years old. And he came up with his own questions, including why is it, Dad, you can give to everybody else, but you can't receive yourself. So from nine years old to 99 years old, all cultures, all religions and uh, genders, we've had no bigotry, no sexism and no racism. And not once has anybody been disrespectful to anybody else. And to hear the way the men and women speak to each other and the comments that go into all the, the videos that we put in there, it just opens my heart up. It's really brilliant to see that People can be so respectful for each other, regardless of what's going on around them. We have conversations to understand the other person, not to be able to just respond to them. The main reason we have all these problems in society is because of a lack of understanding, the differences. But as I said before, everybody you know, wants to be feel that they're valued, that they contribute, that they belong. And so if we find that common thread, and I've found that everybody on the planet wants to feel that they belong, want to feel that they contribute, want to feel that they're valued, etc. So once we find that common thread, then we can start looking at the differences, but from a, a point of understanding that difference and accepting that person as they are and realising that if they were the same as me, this would be a pretty boring planet. I wouldn't be talking to me because I'd be too similar. But to have people who are different, and in fact, at school, we hang around people who are the same as us. 
And therefore, we start to see, as we said before, appearances in people who are friends that look fairly similar as well, because those traits tell us how that person likes to think and process, not what they're thinking and processing, but how they like to think and process. And so with that, you've now started building that relationship with somebody. Then you come back to it and you look at the other people who are different to you. And we do, because we don't understand them, we don't really like them. And this is where bullying at school starts. But once you understand the other person, bullying disappears. That's one of the reasons I want to teach this to kids in school. I can't get it through the education departments because none of them are interested. It's something that's a little bit strange to them. They want to see it proven overseas first. And if it's proven overseas, then they'll look at it because they don't want to take any responsibility in their education systems. But if I teach kids, one boy, 15 years old, when I taught him my master program, he turned around and when I asked him how he was using it, he said he was profiling the other kids at school. I said, how's that working for you? I said, tell me about that. He said, I now understand why they do the things they do. I understand why they're pushing my buttons because I understand me better as well. And I said, what's that giving you? He said, tolerance. So the understanding he got from that gave him the tolerance. And therefore, as far as he was concerned, bullying was off the table. So you can imagine more kids with that attitude and the society that they will then teach the older people, the older generations, how to do things better. The 14-year-old I trained at the time, he told me with a very evil little grin on his face, he said, I'm profiling the school teachers. And I went, okay, how's that working for you? And he said, I now know how to, which ones to pick and which ones to leave alone. He said, I'm stirring them more than I ever stirred them before. And I'm not getting into anywhere near as much trouble because I know which ones to pick. And I said, how's your schoolwork going? He said, oh, forget the schoolwork. He said, I'm having too much time, too much fun teasing the teachers. My way of getting into the education department is once I get the, these skills into the hands of the kids, because I'm putting together some cards, my youngest pupil is my 11-year-old granddaughter at the time. She's now 15. Her homework that we did over a couple of years while she was learning how to read people went into my master manual, but also going into business, into cards. So we like a playing card. On the one side, there'll be the face, the photograph, and the physical trait that we're looking for. And on the back, what that feature means, how to read it, and how to talk to the person. You can imagine like the old football cards we had when I was a kid, et cetera, and baseball cards and things like that. We will have the kids with these cards playing with those and talking to each other, getting off their electronic devices, having proper conversations, getting to understand each other, and we'll see a dramatic drop in bullying. Then I'll go back to the school teachers and I'll apologise to them. I've created a problem for them because I'll then tell them what the 14-year-old said and go, right, if you don't take this on, then you're going to be screwed. The kids are going to have it all over you. They're going to rule the classroom and your teaching life is going to be hell. So that's my way of getting through the bureaucracy of stupidity of our education departments. <laughs> it's fantastic. We are going to have to wrap up now, I'm afraid. I'm really sorry because I'm thoroughly enjoying this. <laughs> Tell everybody how they can get in touch with you and all your contact details and everything will be on the web page that goes with the podcast but just tell people what they can come to you for and where they can find all that information well the best way to find me is through my website and that is alan stevens so a-l-a-n and stevens s-t-e-v-e-n-s dot com dot a-u if they also by the way put the a forward slash after that and they put the word free They'll also be able to get download a free course where they'll get an idea of how I do the profiling, test it for themselves. 
go out and have a little bit of fun with what they learn in there. But for the Campfire Project, again, it's pretty simple. It's uh, thecampfireproject.com.au. And I'd recommend that those that want to build stronger relationships or meet people like minds and have conversations, respectful conversations, and be able to learn from what other people have been through, definitely come and join the Campfire Project. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Alan. This has been absolutely brilliant. I've loved every minute of it. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some thought-provoking information that can make a difference in your life. See you next time.